All right, brothers and sisters, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. And if you would please take your Bibles and open up with me to the uh, the epistle, excuse me, the epistle of James. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5. And before we get into our lesson today, though, uh, if you would please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you give us everything that is necessary for faith and practice. Uh, and then most importantly, you tell us about Christ and how we are to imitate him. Father, I pray that the lesson this morning would be edifying to the hearers. I pray that the meditations of my heart would be uh, only, um, only those things that you would have me to say that would be a benefit to the people here. Father, I pray that for clarity and pray for wisdom. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Many of you know that I'm a seminary student in seminary, studying to be a minister of the Word, a preacher of the Gospel, and I'm currently taking classes on communication. Maybe you couldn't tell. I'm still in the classes. Uh, but the purpose of these classes is to give us the tools necessary uh, to take a piece of God's Word, a passage, a section, and exegete it to explain the content, the context around the passage, the content, and how it can be applied to God's people. And in this classroom, we're not just given the tools, we're not just told how to do it, we are to actually practice and preach. We are given our assigned text and then told to come back next week with the sermon. And so week to week, uh, the, the students would endeavor to uh, bring a sermon, and then we would be uh, given a turn, and we would preach, and then we would all be critiqued. And I have done this, and it is humbling. We, the students, are preaching to the best of our ability, trying to preach our hearts out, and then we are critiqued in the next minute. We're in front of other people preaching our hearts out, and we are told, your hearts are really lacking in this area. Uh, and the critiques might go something like this. Your structure was good, but you really lacked authenticity. Or maybe your illustrations worked, but you missed the main point of the passage. Uh, but we, the church, we, the people of God, really do want this. We really do want our, our men who get up in the pulpit week after week to be prepared for the gospel, uh, to be prepared to deliver uh, a, a well-seasoned word for the hope that is within us. We want them to go through the gauntlet, as it were, uh, in order to be a man worthy of handling the, the word of God. And that's why we call the process of ordination the trials of ordination. Uh, but it is hard for the students, and it's hard to hear that you're a terrible sinner. It's hard to hear that your lack of experience and your immaturity shows. But at the end of every class period, our professor, Pastor Mesner, will point us to a bit of scripture to encourage us so that we don't drive off a cliff on the way home. And he points us to 1 Timothy 4. And let me read a section of that quickly to you. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which is given to you by prophecy, which the council of, of elders have laid on, laid on you, with you, laid on you with their hands." Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they all may see your progress. You see, the criteria is not perfection. But if it was, no one really would be teaching or preaching, at least no one alive today. There would be no one leading the church, but the criteria, rather, is progress, progression, and growth. 
The same description uh, that is given uh, of 1 Timothy 4 to the students who are struggling um, and, and with, their, with their insufficiencies is given in the end of James. So let's, let's consider that as we move through our passage today. Let's consider that James, after giving these scathing rebukes to Christians, after calling out sin after sin, is calling us to be encouraged. It feels as if through moving through the book of James, he's been saying, uh, so you want to be a Christian? Well, let me tell you how you are lacking. In chapter 1, we were called out for being hearers and not doers of the word. In chapter 2, we're called out for the sin of partiality, for favoring the rich. Uh, and then we're told again that faith without works is dead. In chapter 3, we're called out for indulging our deadly tongues and setting a wildfire in the church. In chapter 4, we're called out for being adulterous people because we fight and quarrel and covet and murder and we boast about tomorrow. And in chapter 5, we begin, last week as Mr. Fowler pointed out, with a condemnation of the rich that use their wealth to oppress the poor. And perhaps you might be feeling like me after these critiques are leveled against you. After reading through James, it's like he's been rubbing sandpaper across our consciences, making them tender and sensitive to the touch. And James has been pointing out far worse offenses in us than just ineffective preaching. James has been pointing out the frailty of our Christian walk. And now James is telling us how we can live more effectively as Christians. So as we near the end of James and we jump into our passage today, he offers a Timothy 4-like encouragement. He says, hold on. Be patient, for the end of your trial is coming soon. And in our passage, as you'll see today, we have three imperatives. We have be patient, do not grumble, and do not swear. And so let's see them as encouragement after a, a book of correction. James is not finishing his letter with a just do better statement or attitude. He's actually encouraging us to bear up under the weight of what it means to be a Christian, of being a stranger and an alien in a fallen world. We who are still living in this world of sin need encouragement. And so let us see, us, see that in this passage. And so please read with me James 5, we'll start in verse 7, and we'll go through verse 12. This is the word of God. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the reading of the word of God. So we start our section with a therefore in our first verse, and thus we are assuming there is an immediate connection to the previous section. And that is a section where, um, that is we're assuming there's a section where James tells us something and then he follows up, this logically follows. However, you remember last week that Mr. Fowler pointed out to us that James is really talking to the rich and not necessarily to the Christian congregation who are suffering. He's talking to those who are abusing their wealth. And James gives them a scathing warning. 
So the therefore in our verse 7 is probably not a, you see the rich, be like them. It's more of a, you see the rich, don't be like them. It's a, you do the opposite moment. James is now turning in verse 7 to address a different people than in verse 6. Thus, we're going to continue Mr. Fowler's exegesis here, and let me briefly offer you a reason why. Look at verse 7 and notice that he calls the people brothers. And let me ask you a question. Where Let your eyes glance over the end of James, and where is the last time you see James address the people as brothers? Um, and so, so previous, so the previous time in chapter 4. So before verse 7 of chapter 5, where is the last time he calls them brothers? Verse, yes, verse 11 of chapter 4. That's the last time he uses this in term of endearment. And then that's in the section where he's talking to them about the gospel. He gives them the gospel in verse 6. He tells them that God gives more grace. And then he tells them how we are to live. We are to live in submission to God, who rescues us out of the clasp of the devil. We are further instructed in that section to purify ourselves and to purify our hands, to cleanse our hands. And we also instructed to purify our speech, our language, our speech patterns, and the words that we use that betray our hearts. And so James shifts in his letter in verse 13 of chapter 4 and talks to the haughty, the arrogant, and the presumptuous fools who talk about tomorrow as if they are God. And then he addresses the rich in 5 verse 1. But now James is done putting a whooping on the arrogant rich. He returns to addressing the people of God and he calls them brothers. And he calls them to be holy and continue to grow in holiness. So let us see the therefore that is connecting verse 7 as connecting to us back to the section that we were just called to be holy. The therefore is resuming the call to be holy. And in verse 8 of chapter 4, we have this call to draw near to God, for he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So after being told to be holy, then we're told, verse 7, the imperative, be patient. Now what comes to your mind when you hear the word patient? What sort of relationships? Who might you have to be patient with? Father, son, yep. Wife? Yeah, maybe a wife has to be patient with us. Interns, absolutely. Um, Yeah, we usually think of it as a relationship, person-to-person patience. Um, but let me, let me give you a thought from Ferguson's book. The word here for patience is to bear a weight, is to bear a load. Um, it it's, has to do with enduring, remaining steadfast under weight. And so what James is ending his letter it, with is a similar call to Galatians uh, 6, 9, which says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What he's calling us to do is to press on, to endure in faithful patience as we try to be holy and try to follow in the footsteps of our master. And you see, good shepherds know that their sheep get tired of walking on their way to green pastures and still waters. So they encourage the sheep. And our Lord Jesus experienced this weariness himself in his ministry as you see the man sleeping on a tiny boat in a hurricane. Your pastor knows that your life and giving yourself in devotion to holiness is hard. You need encouragement. And so your elders and your pastors labor 
to make sure that the Word of God is preached to you week by week because you need encouragement and instruction on how to live a holy life. So that's what James is really doing here. He's saying, don't give up in putting your sin to death. Be patient. Don't stop trying to bridle your tongues. Be patient. Be patient in your walk with the Lord. It reminds me of that scene in Amazing Grace where John Newton tells William Wilberforce that God sometimes does His work in gentle drizzles, not explosive bolts of lightning. God's work is long-suffering, so be patient. And how long is this patience supposed to last? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Until the coming of the Lord. It's supposed to last all the way. Now, Jesus is mentioning, excuse me, James is mentioning the second coming for two reasons. First, James is encouraging us by reminding us there is an end to our suffering. And second, James is telling us the manner in which we are supposed to be patient, how we are supposed to be waiting. The first use we can see is encouragement, and let me put it to you this way. What would you say to a woman who is in labor? You would say to her, keep going, for the end is near, and there is much joy afterwards. And that is what James is saying. Be patient while you are struggling here and often failing to be holy, because the end is coming. Your efforts are not in vain. Press on. But there's another reason James is bringing up the coming of the Lord. He's telling us that we are waiting with hope. We're not waiting just to wait around. We're waiting because we are expecting something. We're patient because we know the Lord will come soon to avenge the wrongs done to us. And the bridegroom himself will come. So church, be ready. And this is why James brings up the farmer metaphor in verse 7. Look again with me at that. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Now, this formula is familiar. We are given a command, and then we are shown an example of how to follow it. And the example is one everyone would have been familiar with, a farmer. Simple enough job, right? You take seeds and you put them in the dirt. All you need is seeds, dirt, water, and sun, right? Well, not so much. Anyone who's ever tried to grow anything, either at home or, um, or agriculturally for business, they know that if you don't water it enough, it dies. If you water it too much, it dies. If you don't get enough sun, it dies. There's so many factors that could kill the fruits of your labor. Farming is a difficult venture. But what it is, above all, is an exercise in patience. The farmer has to stick at it for months on end without the smallest edible reward. He doesn't get to eat the fruits of his labor for a long time while the plants grow. He does not get to reap a reward until the harvest at the very end. But the farmer's not stupid. He knows what will happen if he is patient. He is confident that he is so confident that he will get his crops that he bets his life and his family's future on the expectation of the harvest. And so he plants his seed, which he could just eat for a day and be happy, but he plants his seed in order to reap a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he waits. He waits with patience because he knows the end of his patience will be much better than just a handful of seeds. But he's wait in his waiting, he's not doing nothing. He's not idle. Now, many of you know that I dated my wife through working on a farm. We spent long hours planting seeds uh, and sprouts and tiny plants. And we worked carefully through tilled soil, carefully laid irrigation lines, and precisely spaced holes. But most of the work was actually weeding in the time in between you planted and when you would harvest. Weeding was the most time and the least fun. 
we would have to weed for hours on end and you started one end of the field and you would get to the other side and it'd take you probably a week. And by the time you got to the other side, you'd have to go back to the beginning. And um, a very tedious venture. And the farmer is having to do the exact same thing. He's having to care and be diligent and preserve his work. He has to toil on. And the Christian who waits for his Savior is doing the same thing. He has to bear up under the weight of his responsibility to be holy. He must wait patiently because he knows the end is coming. He waits with expectation. And that is faith. The conviction of things not seen, the hope of thing, excuse me, the, the confidence of things hoped for. Now, many of us, myself included, often struggle to think about the second coming of the Lord uh, as it is a weighty thing, is an eternal matter, and it's hard for us to reach our minds beyond time. And some of us are guilty of thinking about it as the end of life as we know it. But that's not why, that's not how the farmer thinks about the harvest. The harvest is just the beginning of the good stuff. The harvest is the end of the waiting. It's the goal of all his work, and it is certainly not the end of his farming. He is no less a farmer while he is eating his harvest than he is while he was weeding. He is no less a farmer when he uh, is feasting with his family than when he's watering, praying, and stressing about his fields. And it is the same for the Christian. It's not the end of us being holy. It's the end of us struggling. It's the end of us being patient. The second coming is, that is. Now, there's a bit more we could say about the early and late rains, um, how the Jewish calendar revolved around this, and there was actually a feast to the Lord uh, of gratefulness at the end. But let's just see that the example is used here because we know that the farmer has to wait through all of them. He has to wait through all the stages, the whole growing season. There's no shortcuts for him. He has to wait for the Lord to send both the early and the late rains. He has to have a full season of growing. And it's the same for the Christian. We do not have any shortcuts to eternal glory. We cannot add to our lives or take away from it anything, any one more hour than the Lord has ordained for us. And more especially, the church cannot move up God's timetable. We cannot somehow force God's hand into returning early or returning on our schedule. We are actually on His schedule, and so we must wait with patience for God to finish His plan of redemption, for Him to save the souls that He wants to bring into the church. And only after God has gathered the early and the late saints, the eleventh hour saints, we might say, will the church reap the beautiful bounty, the bountiful harvest that is the coming of the Lord. And so we're told again in verse 8, again, you also be patient. And how, you might ask? Well, James says, be patient by establishing your hearts, and uh, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Growing up, there was a cheesy movie that we watched a lot, and it was one of those cheaply produced Christian movies with uh, low, poor, poor quality uh, acting, <laughs> low, low camera equipment, and corny dialogue. And it was not The Princess Bride, which, by the way, is the best movie ever. This movie was about a high school football coach who became a Christian. And once he started trusting the Lord, he started working to change his life, uh, to do things unto the Lord. And the Lord then started blessing his efforts. The coach needed a much raise. Uh, he got a much needed raise. He received a new truck, which was red. He started leading his family in devotions, and they were blessed with their first child. And of course, the football, high school football team, which he coached, was also led to Christ, and they started turning their mentality around, and they started winning games. 
And to cap it all off, the high school coach uh, was then of a no-name South Georgia high school team was vid visited by Mark Rick, the former coach of the esteemed Georgia Bulldogs. And at a moment of uh, a crucial moment during the film, the man tells the coach a story about two farmers who prayed to God for rain for their crops. One of them went back inside and did nothing, but the other went out into his fields, and he started digging irrigation trenches and preparing his fields for rain. And the point of the story is that the second farmer actually trusted God to answer his prayer. He put in work and expected God to hear his prayer and to answer. The first guy was a, like the double-minded fellow we heard about in James 1, who asked but doubted God. Thus the passage was meant or the example was meant, and our passage today is meant to, uh, for you to start acting as if you are praying to a God who hears. You, the Christian, um, are to have faith and to trust that God will hear and do His blessing upon you. And the greatest blessing is to be uh, with Him at the second coming. And so that's why we're reminded again, a second time, why the Lord, uh, that the Lord is coming again. And so the point, of, the point of this first section is that we, the church, are supposed to be living like the Lord is coming back. We are supposed to be preparing our hearts for the return of the bridegroom. And so let me point this out one more time with the command to establish your hearts uh, is not a one and done. Jesus, James is not giving us a commandment uh, to be perfect. He's giving us a commandment to grow in our Christian life, hence the farmer reference. He's telling us to cultivate these Christ-like virtues of patience and an established heart in the Lord so that we might progress in the Christian life. So don't be discouraged. There are a lot of things to be discouraged about. There are a lot of things to be grieved over and convicted in James, but growing in grace is certainly not one of them. So let's see the next command in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, at first, there does not seem to be an immediate connection between be patient and do not grumble. But let me remind you of the typical card ride with a child. The innocent question, are we there yet, is soon replaced by bickering and squabbling among siblings. And no, I was not the one to start most of the fights with my sibling. But you see that grumbling is the exact opposite of patience. If we are patient, then we are submitting to the Lord's plan. If we are grumbling, then we are saying, this is wrong, and I don't like it because it doesn't suit me. And therefore, I grumble because I do not trust. Spirit of grumbling is discontentment. And let me read to you briefly what Thomas Watson says about discontentment in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment. He says, discontent is to the soul as a disease is to the body. It, it puts it out of temper and much hinders as regular and sublime motions heavenward. Discontent is hereditary. Yet the disease is not a, to be excused because it is natural. Rather, it is to be resisted because it is sinful. That which should put us out of love with this sullen distemper, discontentment, is the contemplation of the beautiful queen of contentment. And he goes on to describe this Christian contentment, this attitude of being relying on the Lord of being a one who trusts in God as being a glittering gem in the eye of God as he delights in his people. 
So what group of people do we most often think of when we hear the word grumbling against the Lord? Israel, yes, Israel in the wilderness, and pretty much everywhere else. The people of Israel are not patient to wait upon the Lord, but decide in the worst decision that they should grumble because they know better than God, and even create their own way of worshiping God in the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. And all because they were not patient. They were not trusting the Lord. They did not even want to wait 40 days for Moses to return with the word of the Lord. And to these people, the Lord sent Moses, one of the two greatest prophets who appeared with Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration. Now notice verse 10 with me as we're moving through this section on do not grumble. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now we could spend all day uh, with examples of how many prophets were sent to stubborn, stiff-necked Israel, and how many of their ministries were long periods of speaking the same word to the same people who just would not listen. Take uh, the example of Isaiah, who was sent to a people who he was told that the people would not listen. Isaiah was told that Israel would not listen. But let's just briefly consider two examples, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with uh, Jesus. Let's consider Moses' mission. Moses was to arise and go to the people who did not want to be saved. He was to speak a message to Pharaoh and be rejected ten times, thus warranting the ten plagues. He was to lead this grumbling people out of Israel, out of Egypt, and to the promised land and to the mountain of the Lord, where they then rebelled with the golden calf. And God was going to wipe these people out. And then Moses had to intercede for them. And then can you imagine wandering around the wilderness for 40 years with this complaining people? We can barely make it 40 minutes in a car with a complaining child. And through all of this, Moses is still God's ambassador to them. He still brings them the law. He still establishes them in worship. His patience is bearing up under the weight of an entire nation's complaints. And how about Elijah? This man's name literally means, my Lord uh, is Yahweh. And his mission is to proclaim this message to people. And his mission is to bring covenant lawsuit against people, that Israel has rejected the love of the Lord for Baal. And he spends his entire ministry being rejected by the northern kingdom, by Ahab, being persecuted by Jezebel. And he's even, at the, even after the emphasis showdown at Mount Horeb where he kills the 400 prophets of Baal after a mighty display of the Lord's power, he flees because Israel rejects him again. He's a man who truly does preach the word faithfully again and again. And then you notice in verse 11 that we are told about the example of Job. And Job is a faithful man who worships God, and he has all of his possessions taken away, and he remains faithful. He gets struck, and his health is taken away, and he remains faithful. His wife tells him to curse God and to die, but he does not give in. His friends come and tell him uh, terrible advice that all your suffering is due to your own sin because that's just how God is, which clearly cannot be true because Christ is one who suffered innocently, righteously, suffered for sins he did not commit, and he even died. But God, Job remains true to God. He is patient through these trials. We have three examples of steadfast faithfulness, but there's the one thing that all these three have in common. 
they all failed to be patient at some point. Moses grew angry and struck the rock when God told him to speak to it in Numbers chapter 20. Elijah despaired of the Lord's protection and fled from the promised land for fear of Jezebel, who he had just shown was a phony, in 1 Kings 19. And we all remember how Job, in despair, demanded an answer of the Lord for why the Lord had treated him this way. And the Lord comes to show him who he is in chapters 40 through 42 of the book of Job. They all fell short. But notice again in verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And where have we have we seen the patient endurance to the point of death? Where have we seen the steadfast love more fully displayed than the righteous obedience unto death on the cross? Christ is the full imprint of what it means to be patient and established in the Lord. He is the exact model of what it means not to grumble under pressure. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he did not grumble. When Jesus was walking among sinners and ate with tax collectors, he did not complain. He faithfully endured to the end. So if you want an example of being patient, then look no further than the man who lived a sinless life among sinners. But finally, just see with me quickly in verse 12, uh, this command, do not swear, and how it is connected. Now, verse 12 is almost a word-for-word quotation of Matthew 5, 34-37, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And that says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Now James is reiterating Jesus' point on the Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, to give us a practical way in which we can bridle our tongues. And while bridling, bridling our tongues, we are to be working on a deeper patience and a deeper understanding that our hearts are established, our hearts are content, and therefore we do not need to swear. Well, let me ask you, when and perhaps where do you see people cursing and swearing the most? Where do we most hear foul language in the Lord's name taken in vain? Absolutely. But what, what are some scenarios perhaps in our life, uh, when might you be tempted to use foul language? Absolutely, absolutely. You Something happens to you and you're angry about it. You're discontent. Absolutely. For sure, for sure. <laughs> I think we could all empathize with that. Um, there are two, the two scenarios uh, that I would like to submit to you for, for consideration. People often use foul language. They swear and curse uh, when they want to fit in, and they don't really have the vocabulary to do so. And you can think about uh, soldiers entering into the military. The culture is just to use foul language. They want to be people pleasers. And people often swear when they explode in anger, when something does not go their way. And you can probably think of the last time your mind boiled with anger inside of yourself. And so people swear when they want to be people pleasers and when they are grumbling against their situation. 
And let me point out to you a thought from Ferguson again, as Ferguson closes this, his chapter on this by saying, people are most likely to gain patience and endurance when they establish their hearts, and, and establish their hearts when they are under pressure. That is, when the screws are driving down on your life and it is hard. That's when we are patient. That's when we prove ourselves to be steadfast. And that is when we need to be most vigilant about our tongues. And let me give you one more example to think about as we close. Remember Peter in the court of the Pharisees. He was asked three times if he was a follower of Christ, if he was a Christian. And he denied it three times. But the last time, do you all remember what he included about himself? In Matthew 26, verse 74 particularly, Peter denies a third time and he begins to call down curses on himself. He swears. And by contrast, Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When the pressure was on him, he was silently patient. And he even took merciful measures to make sure that the care of his mother was given in uh, over to the hands of his disciple. So, so let me close with this thought. James and, Ferg- and Ferguson uh, want us to remember, uh, or, or rather, let me, let me call a connection to your mind uh, between verses James 1, verse 2, James 1, 2, where we have this weird connection or weird command to count it all joy. Count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. We're supposed to be joyful when we suffer. Now, this is a rather strange command, but it all makes sense as we wrap up the book, and hopefully it makes sense in this way. First, James is saying, all of you who suffer, all of you who are having to be patient and establish and even fail in doing that, you are following in the footsteps of your Christian brothers, for you are my brothers. And second, all who suffer and are trying to be steadfast for the Lord are following in the footsteps of their Savior and are waiting for the second coming. Because to build patience and steadfastness, which are qualities of our Savior, we must be tested. We must be put into hard situations of life where we have no other choice than to tether our ships to the mercy of the Lord in the raging storms of life. We must actually have been there and done all that in order to be called patient and steadfast. In order to attain Uh, In order to attain uh, Christianity, in order to be called a Christian, we must suffer for our faith. We must be those who wage war against our sin and experience uh, the, the terrible weight of our sin in relationship to the holiness of God. We must be those who are gripped by the things of God. And so we can count it all joy whenever we encounter trials of various kinds. Because, because we know that the Spirit of Christ is working into us the image of patience, that is, the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit is transforming our rebellious, impatient spirits into one that relies on the Almighty God. And this is the image of Christ. And so how do you be patient and establish your hearts and not grumble and not swear during all these various trials? Well, you trust in the Lord who promised that He will work a work of patience into your character. And so we Christians who get out of bed in the morning and press on, we press on because the Lord will establish our hearts in every good work. Any questions? Comments? Statements of brilliance? Seeing none, let's close in prayer.
Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you give us a word of encouragement that one day soon you will return. And when you do return, you will bring peace and healing in your wings. That you will bring vindication for the Christians who are suffering now. But Father, I pray that you would work a spirit of patience within the hearts of the believers here. I pray that you would establish our hearts and that we would be given the strength to go on in the fight against sin and the need to be holy because our Savior was holy. And Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now to worship you in a spirit of truth, in the spirit of righteousness. I pray that we would come to you only in the name of Christ because it is in no other name that we, that we would stand in. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.